The date is Tuesday, December 16, 2008, and the Special Programs Committee of Accessible World is very pleased to invite you here to a first. For our presenter tonight will be our first uh, uh, presenter in our Special Programs series. With the growing concern of the nation's economy, Edwin Cooney, a student of history, has been invited to launch this special program series by providing a historical overview of the economic depression in America. He will begin by defining just what the term depression means, and then will briefly review the history of economic depressions during the 19th and 20th centuries. The substance of the presentation, however, will be the scope of the Great Depression from 1929 to 1942, including the causes of the Depression as interpreted by economists and historians and details as to the anecdotes applied to cure the Depression offered by President Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. Mr. Cooney will touch on the 1932 presidential campaign, FDR's inaugural address, the first 100 days of the New Deal, as well as the differences between the first and the second New Deals. Finally, he will discuss what ended the Depression and outline the differences between the causes of the 1929 Depression and the current crisis through which we are passing. It is my great privilege at this time to introduce my friend Edwin Cooney. Ed, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Pat, and thank you to everyone who has taken the time to be here tonight. This is a very new experience for me. Um, I received my MA degree um, some 33 years ago, <laughs> which of course dates me. And this is the first, um, what you might call, quasi-academic lecture that I've ever done. And uh, so. It's an experiment for me as, as, as it is for you, um, my listeners. Um, just to show you how together I am, I was uh, preparing my notes shortly after 5 o'clock <laughs> and uh, had my notes in front of me, made a pot of coffee, and, uh, thinking about what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. And I finally decided that I could do this with my computer off. And then I remembered. Um, as for preparing lectures or preparing speeches, one of my favorite anecdotes is about President Woodrow Wilson, who was once asked about uh, preparing speech. Dr. Wilson had prepared one or two speeches and certainly a lot of lectures. And he was asked how long it took him to prepare one. And he said, well, if you want a three to five minute speech, it'll take me about a week. He said, if you want, say, a ten to five to fifteen minute speech, he says, oh, about five days. He said, if you want a speech lasting, say, between fifteen minutes and a half hour, uh, about three days. If you want the speech to last longer than forty-five minutes, I can start now. The reason for this meeting is, is Bob and uh, 
Pat, and Pat, I think I forgot to mention you during the introduction. I'm very sorry about that. Pat Price, uh, who's been so generous in helping me, as, is, as has Bob, um, is, of course, the current status of the economy, our, our concern about it, and getting something of a historical perspective. Now, I want to say something rather important about myself. I am a student of history, as, as Bob told you. I am not an economist. Uh, the prominent news commentator, Paul Harvey, uh, has quoted the late and great financier Bernie M. Brook as saying, an economist is a fellow who thinks he knows more about money than us who have it. Well, I don't have it, and certainly I don't know much about it, but uh, I'm, I'm not an economist, but I'm going to do a little venturing here tonight. Okay, so what is a depression? Well, not everything that is official is true, but things that are true are true even when they're not recognized. Now, where am I? What, what does that mean? Uh, officially, a, a, a depression follows a recession. It's a downturn in the economy. We're said to be in recession when the GDP, that's the gross domestic product, drops below uh, a certain level. It continues downward for more than three quarters or, or sometimes four quarters. Uh, the situation that we're in right now, uh, we've been in since the end of 2007. And as of this moment, there is no end in sight. But depressions are very, very sneaky things. You don't know when you're in one. It, 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 Herbert Hoover didn't know when we were in one. And Herbert Hoover knew a lot more about business and economy than most of us here do. So depressions are funny things. I, I've often been, uh, I've been impressed with, with an expression that, that I heard a long time ago. In fact, um, it was the, the, the term that was used when uh, the pilgrims came over, talking about the society they were going to put together. They called it the body politic. And America, in a way, is a body politic because it's the sum and substance of all of us. Everything we, from where we come, everything we do, everything we talk about, everything we plan to do. So, a nation is, 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 is the sum and substance of everybody in it. And, of course, people can become depressed. So a depression, in a way, and, and this is not official, but a, a depression really is little more than a national funk. That's what a depression is. And we've been through them before. As most of you know, the federal government was formed and George Washington became president in 1789. And 18 years later, during the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, came our first depression. It was, it was a small depression, but it was brought on because England and France were fighting with, a, with one another in Europe and they wanted us on their side. England, as our former mother country, I always get into trouble with Roe when I use that phrase because she says the, the phrase mother country is, is archaic, and she's right, but I'm rather archaic. 
Anyway, Britain had been our mother country, and she expected, even though we had rebelled, that we would come in on her side. France, who had helped us during the revolution, said, no, you ought to come in on our side. And besides, Napoleon said, you know, we sell, sold Louisiana to us. But Jefferson wanted no part of the war, and so he issued an embargo. Businesses, merchants could not trade with either England or France, and there was a recession, especially in the northeast part of the country. It was especially bad in New England. And that lasted for two or three years, resulted in some unemployment and so forth. But we came out of it, and the next depression was in 1819. There were about, as I say, six or seven depressions, and I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to name them, and then I'll say something about what they all had in common. So, 1807... 1819, 1837, 1857, 1893, 1893, and 1907. All of them had really three things in common. Shoddy banking practices. Banks taking advantage of, of, of lenders. Or, uh, no, excuse me, the bank is the lender, Take, taking advantage of customers, unwise investments, extending too much credit without security. The second thing that most of the depressions had in common uh, was crop failures in the farm. This was true in 1819, it was true in 1837, and it was true in the 1890s. <coughs> excuse me. The third thing that, of course, depressions all have in common, of course, is the failure of business. Um, and, of course, pockets of unemployment and so forth. So that's what all of these things had in common. Most of the time, the government stayed out of trying to solve the, 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 the depression. Uh, the government did get involved in 1819 because the problem in the West was um, with land speculation in the West and a lot of people were moving West and suddenly they couldn't afford to pay for the homes to the land that they had just purchased. And so the Secretary of the Treasury, a gentleman from Georgia by the name of William Crawford, um, said, well, we just have to do something. We have to ease interest rates and we have to receive, we have to, we have to alter our payment schedules. And he did that, and that took care of that. In 1907, when the Knickerbocker Company, the Knickerbocker Trust caused the panic of 1907, uh, Theodore Roosevelt did supply some of the failing banks with, with money. So, you know, there, there, these things did happen from time to time, and government got involved, but for the most part, it stayed uninvolved. Uh, the Depression of 1893 was interesting because one of the results of the Depression was a gentleman from Massillon, Ohio, by the name of um, Jacob Coxey, put together a group, it was called Coxey's Army, and he, he, he marched all the way from Massillon, Ohio, to Washington, D.C. He had about 100 people when he started out, 
by the time he got to Washington, D.C., he had 500 people. So Coxey's army was pretty good, but they put him in jail anyway. He'd gone to Washington to demonstrate in favor of public works programs, but the Cleveland administration wouldn't listen. Stephen Grover Cleveland was as honest as the day is long, and he was supposedly a friend of the working man, but he didn't believe that the government, as had most of his predecessors, that the government had any business getting involved in solving social problems. So, we come to the 1920s. And you know, you can't talk about the 1920s without focusing on Herbert Hoover. Had Hoover not been president, he still would have been probably the most prominent politician of that time. He was born in West Branch, Iowa, on August the 10th of 1874. His father, Jesse Clark Hoover, was a, was a blacksmith. His mother, Hulda Minthorn Hoover, and that's H-U-L-D-A-H, uh, was a native of Ontario, Canada. She um, was born and, and spent some of her girlhood there, but she moved to Iowa and eventually attended the University of Iowa, so she was well-educated. She was born in 1848. And the reason that I mention her is because she had a major impact on who Herbert Hoover became. Um, she became, um, after her husband's death in, in 1880, she became a minister in the Quaker Church and preached at friends' meetings in the 1880s. And in 1883, at the age of 36, she passed away. And so Herbert Hoover, his older brother Theodore, and his sister Mary, whom they called May, were suddenly orphaned. They moved to the West Coast to live with um, a maternal uncle, and um, Hoover worked very hard, and uh, his, his, his uncle John ran a school, and uh, he worked sufficiently hard and was admitted to the new Leland Stanford University in uh, 1893. He graduated in 1897, had a degree in engineering, and um, while he was a student at Sta Stanford, he met his wife, Lou Henry. Uh, that was her name, Lou. And they married, and eventually he took a position with a mining company in China. And by 1914, he was a multimillionaire. In 1914, as you recall, World War I broke out. And um, he headed the U.S. Relief Commission, giving aid and assistance to Americans who were stranded in Europe during World War I. Between 19 and 1914 and 1917, he headed the relief effort that also assisted the people of Belgium. He became U.S. Food Administrator under President Woodrow Wilson in 1917 and 1918, and in that position, he instituted things, ask Americans to sacrifice for the war effort, to, to uh, like wheatless Wednesdays, uh, meatless Fridays, and so forth, and uh, encouraged America to sacrifice to assist 
not only the Allies, but the refugees uh, at the end of the war. He became the director of the U.S. Relief Administration in 1919. And so he was considered a, a real humanitarian. He, he fed the starving people of Europe. He even urged relief efforts to those in the Soviet Union, even though it was a communist country. He felt it was important always to look after people who were the victims of deprivation and starvation. Deprivation, excuse me. Deprivation and starvation. So he was a real humanitarian. Uh, although he was a Republican and, and he had actually never voted. Um, although he was a Republican, he supported Woodrow Wilson's effort to join the League of Nations in, in 1920, and he was rather critical of, of Wilson for being so stubborn that he wouldn't compromise with the U.S. Senate in getting the League of Nations passed. And in fact, before they knew Herbert Hoover was a Republican, there was talk because both party nominations in 1920 were open, there was talk that the Democratic presidential nomination in 1920 would go to Herbert Hoover. And the speculation during the San Francisco Convention of 1920, with the Demo Democratic National Convention in San Francisco, was that Herbert Hoover's running mate would be, guess who? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So Herbert Hoover was well established by 1920, and when we chose Warren Harding as our president, Warren Harding asked Herbert Hoover to become Secretary of Agriculture, and Hoover accepted the offer. He accepted that offer with a condition, and his condition was that if he were to be Secretary of Agriculture, he should have some voice, if not the deciding voice, only the President has the deciding voice, but he should have some voice in all economic decisions made by the Harding administration. Now, Herbert Hoover was the ideal businessman. He'd made millions himself. He'd shared millions with the starving people of Europe. <coughs> he was seen as excuse me. He was seen as one who could harmonize the selfish demands of the marketplace with the unfinished public business of the people. And as Secretary of Agriculture, he did exactly that. If there was a flood somewhere, Herbert Hoover was there. When a dam was being constructed, Herbert Hoover was overseeing the dam. Herbert Hoover was a man on the move. No question about it. So, when on August the 2nd of 1927, President Calvin Coolidge um, stated, I do not choose to run for president in 1928. There was a stampede to guess who? 
Now, not all Republicans loved Herbert Hoover. Not by any means. He had, after all, given $1,000 to Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party campaign in 1912, and a lot of Republican politicians have long memories. But he was the most proactive member of the Coolidge administration, he, and he, there was no doubt that he would get the nomination. Now, I want to say a, a few things about the 1920s. It was a time of unprecedented prosperity. World War I was over, and we had come out of the war better off than anybody else who was in the war. And every other nation in Europe owed us money. Business was good. Strikes were at a minimum. But there were some underlying problems that just weren't being recognized. One of them was, as reported by the Federal Trade Commission in 1926, that 60% of the wealth was owned by 1% of the population. 44 million people earned about $1,000 a year. So you, you divide 52 into $1,000, you can see what a week's salary was. And yet, there was a great deal of, of technological advancement in the 1920s. It was the age of radio, it was the age of movies, and eventually the, talk, or, uh, the talking movies, the talkies. Lindbergh flew the Atlantic, and there was general prosperity. There's no question about it. But there was also another problem. Farm income was down. Farmers who had produced the food that Herbert Hoover gave away to the people of Europe in World War I, farm income was way down. They had, they had uh, grown a lot of foodstuffs during the war, and there was a glut on the market. Efforts to provide relief to farmers, to give some federal relief to farmers, <clears throat> were twice vetoed by President Coolidge. And Secretary of Commerce Hoover didn't want to see federal aid to farmers or anybody else. Republicans considered federal aid to farmers or to any group in trouble as class legislation. And they opposed it. Now, if people are making $1,000 a year. Consider this. In 1920, only 33 Americans had incomes more than a million dollars. By 1928, there were 511 people who had an income of $1 million or more. Uh, Throughout the 20s, people making $10,000 a year doubled. In 1928, 10% of all people filing income taxes made 
$1,000 or less. And in 1927, it was even less than that. There were 25,330 banks in the United States on June the 30th of 1929. 1,827 1, of those banks failed um, between 1928 and 19, 1927 and 1929. 5,102 between 1929 and 1932, and banks failed at the rate of two a day between 1926 and 1928, and at a rate of three a day between 1930 and 1932. And yet all of this went unnoticed. Production was down between 1926 and 1928 and continued to slide down. And yet, and yet, Nobody noticed it. Part of the reason for that was the belief that America would be prosperous only so long as business was happy. And then, of course, there was the stock market. Um, oh, I, I, I broke off my thought here a minute ago. People would be happy as long as business was happy. And anything that challenged business was considered an enemy, even unpatriotic, labor unions. In fact, the Rockefellers and the Raskovs and people like that would rather pay, would rather invoke pay raises than to give bargaining power to a union. And another problem in the 1920s was a lack of credit restraints in the stock market. Stocks were available on 25% margin. Margin is credit. Depressed farm incomes, um, high, cost for for high cost for farm equipment, and farm, farm products, um, the price of farm products fell. And there was poor agricultural land allotment. Farmers continued to grow too much. Secretary of Commerce Hoover and eventually President Hoover tried to get farmers to, to, to join cooperatives, but cooperatives were too ineffective. Farmer, farm prices continued to drop. And so Herbert Hoover, when he was elected in 1928, had no idea that the ceiling was going to um, one of the things that I have for you tonight, excuse me, one of the things I have for you tonight is a series of what you might call uh, remotes. And the first one is a, camp, a part of the campaign speech in 1928. Listen to candidate Herbert Hoover as he predicted the future. If we survey the situation of our nation, both at home and abroad, we find many satisfactions. We have emerged from the losses of the Great War and the reconstruction following it with increased virility and strength. I have no fears for the future of our country. It is bright with hope. 
So Herbert Hoover became president on March the 4th of 1929. Back, I guess in the late 40s, early 50s, CBS, CBS's um, number one newsman, Edward R. Murrow, made a series of historic records called I Can Hear It Now. And um, the first one that was ever recorded was about the 1920s. And so let's listen to correspondent Murrow as he narrates what things were like in America as Herbert Hoover assumed the presidency. Back in Cannes, 181 7 at Copper 162. New York Central. It was 1929, the year of the Golden Globe, of the boom, of the bull market, when a nation with a rainbow around its cocky shoulder stumbled onto what appeared to be the permanent plateau of prosperity. The capital was still in Washington, but the nation's pulse was to be felt where two swollen arteries named Broad and Wall Streets met. There, the stock market reflected the nation's fever. Everyone played the market. The financial page was read by more people than the sports page. Your barber and your cab driver talked about the kill their cousin had made in copper. And everybody talked about margin. At 10 o'clock on the morning of October 24th, the traditional bell sounded across the exchange, and another day of trading got underway. General Electric, 315. General Electric, 310. But by 11 o'clock, it was apparent that this was no ordinary day. This was to be Black Thursday. And for a number of well-known stocks, no buyers could be found at any price. A constricting ripple of fear spread over the startled floor and to every corner of the nation. Margin. You'll have to put up more margin. Few of the millions of people who were playing the market owned their stocks outright. Most of it was on margin. And to do this, more than $6 billion had been borrowed from banks and brokers who would be forced to call if panic seized the market. Margin. Must have more margin. Still, there were no takers as values continued to fall. Then, at about 1.15, a hypodermic of adrenaline was given to the frightened patient. Richard Whitney, representing four of the big banking houses, walked onto the exchange floor and put in a bid for steel. Its price at the moment was 193. We'll buy steel at 205. 25,000 shares. The effect of the stimulant was immediate. A miracle seemed to have taken place. There were buyers for all stocks in the market rally. The case of national jitters quickly subsided. Nothing to worry about. Just a free run. About those new defenses. But on the following Tuesday, October 29th, the bottom fell out of the market. No buyers were to be found for anything. American can, 120. It had been at 181. It fell to 86. 18 It eventually went to 197. Had been 304. Union Carbide, 73. In September, 137. In November, Union Carbide, 59. In that one fateful day, 16 million shares had changed hands. In a day which saw the ticker tapes running hours behind. In a day which left the mighty national shrine a bedlam of horror. Its vast floor strewn with ten inches of paper. 
It's machinery buckling under the strain. Its operators exhausted in the growing pandemonium. And its customers, for the most part, cleaned out. The big bull market was dead. The golden glow of prosperity had turned to dross. But the disease was by no means localized. The toxic germs of despair were pumped to every part of the body. The arteries of commerce were clogged with 5,000 bank failures. 45,000 miles of railroads fell into bankruptcy. Big business that didn't fail retrenched and contracted, and the disease raced on to the capillaries in the cells. 12 million unemployed. More than half a million farms lost as farm prices fell 75%. 1930 brought the droughts to the eroded plains. 1931 brought the bread lines and the soup kitchens and the apple cellars and more unemployment. 15 million now. In 1932, Federal troops were forced to fire on the bonus marchers who had encamped in Washington. Defiant farmers stood in line with shotguns to fight off tax foreclosures. The citizens of the richest nation in the world watched its lifeblood turning to water, unable to digest the produce of its burgeoning storehouse. This, indeed, was total depression. It might be instructive, it might be instructive once again to go over the causes for the depression. As soon as I get my notes together here. First, of course, was accelerated um, uh, profits to, to business <coughs> at the expense of labor. Depressed farm income. And, of course, lack of restraint in the marketplace. And so you could see it was, it was heading down. The problem was that even after the stock market crashed, nobody, including President Hoover, realized that we were in a depression. They kept promising that prosperity was just around the corner. But it wasn't. The 1932 campaign would be between Franklin Roosevelt and Mr. Hoover. FDR had uh, begun his political career in 1910. By the way, he was born in 1882, January 30th of 1882, in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, he was raised amidst wealth. Uh, his father, James Roosevelt, had wanted to name him Isaac. It was traditional in the, Rose in, in the Hyde Park uh, uh, branch of the Roosevelt family that one generation, would, uh, the, 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 the son would be named James, and the next generation, the, the, the name would be Isaac. And so he wanted to name the little boy Isaac. But Sally Delano Roosevelt, who was much younger than her husband, would have nothing to do with the name Isaac. Uh, in fact, when FDR was a little boy, uh, up until he was about seven or eight years old, his mother dressed him as a girl. And... Um, of course, he had only the best things. Uh, his home, and you can visit it at Hyde Park, is right on the Hudson River. Can you imagine what that real estate would be worth now? So he was raised amidst luxury. Um, he went to Harvard after attending Groton. 
uh, which, is a which is a preparatory school. And, and then, as I say, on to Harvard. After he left Harvard in 1903, um, he practiced, he, pra he went to Columbia Law School and actually practiced law for a time, although um, not very seriously. On March the 7th, 1905, he married his fifth cousin, who was the niece of President Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy had just been, a, and that's, of course, Eleanor, Anna Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, they um, were married about two weeks after, after, after TR's 1905 inaugural. He'd been elected to a full term the year before. And um, they were married in New York, and, of course, Teddy came down for the wedding. And um, it was on St. Patrick's Day of... of 1905, and of course Teddy was the center of attention, and so the family decided it would be wise to have two um, we call the lines when reception lines, you know, at the wedding, one for President Teddy and the other for the couple, and the wedding took place, and the couple got in got ready to greet people, and of course Teddy was ready to greet people, and guess who had to go to the other line? Nobody joined their line. Everybody wanted to see the president. So that was kind of a bit of a disaster, but I, albeit a, you know, a pleasant, pleasant enough disaster as disasters go. Um, FDR and Eleanor would have five boys and a girl. Uh, their daughter would be Anna, and they would have James and Franklin and Elliot and John. I may have missed one. Actually, there were two Franklin Roosevelt's. The first uh, Franklin Roosevelt Jr. died um, after about eight months of life, but they eventually named another son Franklin Roosevelt Jr. Um, FDR was elected to the New York State Senate in 1910. He went on to serve um, um, about three years in the, in, the, in the State Senate altogether. And then he became Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He announced that he was going to follow his Uncle Teddy. Now, of course, his Uncle Teddy was a Republican, but he remained a, a Democrat. But he was going to follow his Uncle Teddy. Um, he campaigned for Woodrow Wilson in 1912, was appointed Assistant Secretary of the Navy, as had his cousin Teddy, fifth cousin Teddy. Um, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy from 1913 until 1920, when he became the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party at that party's convention in San Francisco. And then he... Um, and of course, they lost the election. That was, that was the year of the, of the Harding-Coolidge landslide, so they lost that election. So the 1920s, the prosperous 1920s, stretched out before them. And then, of course, on August 10th of 1921, it's kind of ironic, but that was Herbert Hoover's birthday, FDR, while at Campobello Island, 
came down with infantile paralysis. And of course, that changed everything. Um, he spent most of the 1920s recuperating, although he did participate in politics. He participated at the 1924 Democratic Convention in support of Al Smith and actually um, made a nominating speech for Al Smith. He did the same in 1928 at the Houston Convention for Al Smith. And then he was talked into running for governor of New York. Of course, he had been in Warm Springs in Georgia recuperating from his polio attack. And um, he was a little reluctant to to take on a public responsibility because he knew that if he did it, he would never fully regain the use of his legs. And of course, he never did. But he became governor of 1929. And in 1932, he decided to run for president. In March of 1932, while he was running for president, the prominent newspaper columnist Walter Littman, who was then writing for the New York World, um, wrote an editorial in which he described Roosevelt as a very pleasant man who, with no important qualifications would very much like to be President of the United States. And of course, he received the Democratic nomination on the fourth, on the fourth ballot, and then the 1932 presidential campaign began. Um, I have two speeches from the 1932 campaign. First, you'll hear FDR. And he's talking about his, his campaign as the battle for the democracy. Uh, FDR said in 19... One of the things that was apparent to FDR and, and all of his aides and so forth was the people weren't terribly excited. They were worried. They were losing their homes and their farms. And they weren't terribly enthusiastic for either candidate. They wanted to know what the candidates were going to do for them. So here's FDR battling for the presidency. I deplore the tendency to blame all of our present troubles on the president. He is perhaps the victim of a theory which holds that the control of the Republican Party entitles the holders of the reins to use that historic party for the purpose of personal gain. He and his associates have perhaps shown a lack of high capacity to contribute leadership in the solving of a national crisis. The battle of the democracy is pointed not at the rank and file of the Republican Party, but at those who today direct its policy. But the battle of the democracy can never tolerate abuse heaped against the person of the President of the United States. And, of course, President Hoover promised to do more. I shall carry forward the work of reconstruction. I shall hope long before another four years have passed to see the world prosperous and at peace in every American home, again in the sunshine of genuine progress and of genuine prosperity. This is my pledge to the nation and my pledge to the almighty God.
This is Robert Trout at our election headquarters in the newsroom in New York. The results of the 1932 election now appear to be certain. The ticket of Roosevelt and Garner has won a clear-cut majority over the Republican ticket of Hoover and Curtis. And so the United States has a new president. He will not take office, of course, until next March the 4th, when on the steps of the Capitol, Chief Justice Hughes will administer the oath to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt's victory in 1932 was pretty impressive. He received 22,821,857 votes, or 57% uh, of the popular vote, to Hoover's 15,100,000. Yeah, 15,761,841 votes. Roosevelt carried 42 states. Hoover carried six states. March 4th, 1933 was a pretty bleak day throughout the country. There had been a run on the banks for weeks and weeks and weeks. Businesses were failing. Banks were failing. Remember, I said nobody dared to do anything. Nobody dared to buy anything. Nobody dared to spend any money. And so that's how it was. As FDR took the oath of office, farmers were standing, um, were demanding the end of foreclosures, of their farm foreclosures. The cities weren't much better. People living in cities who had lost their homes called those cities Hoovervilles. Newspapers were called Hoover Blankets. Pockets turned inside out because they, were because they were so empty were called Hoover Flags. Jackrabbits slaughtered for food were called Hoover Hogs. Um, President Hoover, you, you remember that back then, Election Day occurred on, in November, and Inauguration Day occurred about four months later. And Hoover wanted FDR to become involved in helping solve the Depression. And FDR decided that Hoover was simply too politically toxic to become involved, and he ignored him. Hoover didn't believe that government ought to become a tool to solve economic problems, and FDR did. And so Hoover stayed away from the, I'm, I'm sorry, FDR stayed away from the Hoover administration. After March the 4th, he would be responsible for everything, and he wasn't going to take on that responsibility until it was time. I next want to play portions, not the whole thing, but I want to play portions of FDR's inaugural. I mean, I'm sure all of you have heard that it truly, um, inspired the nation, and it did. But in that speech, Hoover, I mean, the President, boy, I'm getting confused here, aren't I? In that speech, Roosevelt does outline what he's going to do in, in broad general terms, not in specifics, but in broad general terms he does. So I'm going to play portions, there's about 10 minutes of it here, but I'm, I'm going to interrupt it for comments, uh, with comments, and then and then uh, we'll go from there. But here's, here's FDR on the steps of the Capitol, March 4th, 
Yes, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truth. The measure of that restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values, more noble than mere monetary profit. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort, the joy, the moral stimulation of work. No longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent thought. But days, my friends, will be worth all they cost us if they teach us that our true destiny is not to be ministered unto, but to minister to ourselves, to our fellow men. Recognition of that falsity of material wealth as the standard of success goes hand in hand with the abandonment of the false belief that public office and high political positions are to be valued only by the standard of pride of place and personal profit. And there must be an end to a conduct in banking and in business which too often has given to a sacred trust the likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing. languishes, for it thrives only on honesty, on honor, on the sacredness of obligations, on faithful protection, and on unselfish performance. Without them, it cannot live. Restoration calls, however, not for changes in ethics alone. This nation is asking for action and action now. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself. Treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war, but at the same time through this employment, accomplishing great, greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our great natural resources. Yes, the task can be helped by definite efforts to raise the values of agricultural products and resist the power to purchase the output of our cities. It can be helped by preventing realistically the tragedy of the growing loss through foreclosure of our small homes and our farms. It can be helped by insistence that the federal, the state, and the local governments act forthwith on the demand that their costs be drastically reduced. It can be helped by the unifying of relief activities which today are often scattered uneconomical, unequal. It can be helped by national planning for and supervision of all forms of transportation and of communication and other utilities that have a definitely public character. There are many ways in which it can be helped. 
but it can never be helped by merely talking about it. We must act. We must act quickly. And finally, in our progress towards a resumption of work, we require two safeguards against a return of the evils of the old order. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credit and investment. There must be an end to speculation with other people's money. And there must be provision for an adequate but sound currency. These, my friends, are the lines of attack. I shall presently urge upon a new Congress in special session detailed measures for their fulfillment. And I shall seek the immediate assistance of the 48 states.
They have made me the present instrument of their wishes. In the spirit of the gift, I take it. In this dedication, in this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of them. May he guide me in the days to come. That was a pretty revolutionary speech in the sense that it, it um, infused the people with confidence because, as I say, things were pretty black that Saturday. Okay. Um, we need to move on, I guess, a little faster than we have. I think we've bogged down here a little bit. So let me, first of all, talk about the New Deal. There were two New Deals. There was what we call the 100 Days in 1933. Uh, and that 100 Days would be primarily concerned with solving the economic structure of the country. Now, the first major function was, of course, banking. Banks were closing. Again, over 5,000 banks had failed. And so on the, on the 9th of March, the president issued a proclamation proclaiming a bank holiday. Banks were closed. The Treasury Department sent squads of auditors into the bank, all banks throughout the country. It, <clears throat> it looked at their books. It reissued currency. And the banks opened about the 13th of March, FDR's first fireside chat on, on, Monday the, on Sunday, the 12th of March of 1933, was about banking. And he urged the people to keep their, he, he, he told the people they were better off keeping their money in a bank than they were keeping their money under the mattress. And about 90% of the people complied. It was absolutely amazing. The Glass-Steagall Act was passed, which took commercial banking out of speculation. Banks could no longer play the stock market themselves. The second thing that Roosevelt tackled was, was the, the problem of having to do with farmers. Uh, the first Agricultural Adjustment Act was passed on March the 16th of 1933. Its goal was to restore farm incomes by reducing surpluses. Um, the, land the land allotment plan paid farmers to restrict acreage. Um, a, fin a finance processing tax paid that cost. On March 27th of 1933, the Farm Credit Administration, uh, which um, merged several executive departments that were supposed to be taking care of the farmer, was enacted. The Farm Mortgage Act, which provides loans to farmers facing farm foreclosures, was also passed on March 27th or proposed on March 27th. The next group that FDR took care of was, of course, business and finance. The 
Truth and Securities Act was proposed on March the 29th. Sellers, sellers of stocks or of other securities had to register with the Federal Trade Commission. And there were severe fines and penalties. There were severe fines and penalties um, if their reports weren't accurate or if they failed to report. This act was followed in 1934 by passage of the Securities and Exchange Act. And its first chairman, by the way, was Joseph P. Kennedy, John Kennedy's father. After taking care of the farmers and the bankers, the next people to be taken care of were the manufacturers and business. The National Industrial Recovery Act, many considered the, the, the cornerstone of the New Deal. Title I created the National Recovery Administration, um, which created a system of rules by which business businesses would be run. Uh, they would do away with um, uh, price, uh, price fixing would be allowed. They would do away, they would ignore the, uh, many of the antitrust laws. Um, businesses who wanted to increase their markets would join and um, would be the beneficiaries of advertising and marketing. Um, its symbol was the Blue Eagle. It was headed by General Hugh Johnson. As I say, as, as I say, antitrust trust laws were suspended to benefit members who joined it. A lot of the industries did. Uh, notably, Henry Ford refused to join. Uh, it eventually would be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. M members of the National Industrial Re uh, the na uh, members of the National Recovery Act um, would support unions. So there would be unions. There would be collective bargaining. There would be minimum wages. And there would be minimum hours. Uh, Title II of the National Industrial Recovery Act created the Works Progress Administration, which would be run by the Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes. Um, that department would be responsible for building highways, constructing federal buildings, and uh, other major projects. I believe that that project was ultimately responsible for the building of the of the um, Bay Bridge out here in California. The next group that FDR tackled in that 100 days was relief for the unemployed. There was the Civilian Conservation Corps, which created jobs for upwards of 3 million young people living in cities. They would go into the countryside and under uh, rather militaristic conditions. They'd be paid a dollar a day, and they were expected to send most of their pay home. They'd be paid a dollar a day, and they would be responsible for reforestation, uh, flood control, and soil conservation. The Federal, em the Federal Emergency Relief Administration was, was enacted, providing money 
for direct relief uh, to the unemployed in the cities, as well as loans to states for um, projects and programs to give direct assistance uh, to the unemployed or give assistance to companies that uh, would employ the unemployed. It was headed by, it was called the Works Progress Administration. No, I'm sorry, that's the FELA, it, 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 and its head was Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins was a, um, a, wealth, uh, was a social worker out of Ames, Iowa. He'd worked in New York City for a number of years, and he became very close to Roosevelt. He would play um, a, a very prominent role during World War II as an advisor to Roosevelt. Um, also providing relief was the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which established $2 billion revolving fund to uh, finance homeowners, to prevent home foreclosures. And of course, there was the Tennessee Valley Authority Act, which was passed on April, or which was proposed on April the 10th and passed on May the 18th of 1933, which provided cheap electricity and economic development and soil conservation to the rich Tennessee Valley. And so that basically was the hundred days. They took care of the farmer. They took care of the. They took care of the farmer. They took care of the businessman. They took care of um, the laboring man and, of course, the unemployed. And that was the first New Deal between March and June of 1933. The second New Deal, which actually began in, eight, in 1945, uh, 1935, excuse me, it's getting late. Uh, the second New Deal, which began in 1935, was more designed for the individual. It wasn't so much a structural program. The Works Progress Administration constructed 125,000 public buildings, 65,000 miles of roads, 25,000 miles of bridges, and that was headed by Harry Hopkins. You know, Harry Hopkins used to be criticized that his, his, for creating these programs, and they were called make-work projects. And people wondered if they had any value. And they said, you know, if, if, if you'll just let things go, uh, things will be better in the long run. And, and, and Harry Hopkins used to say, people don't eat in the long run. They eat every day. Um, artists, poets were employed. Actors were employed by the Works Progress Administration. Teachers were hired. The second major project of the Second New Deal, again to, to help individuals and homeowners, was the Rural Electrification Administration. And that was in 1935. It brought cheap electricity, cheap electric power, to areas of the country that, that private utilities insisted that they couldn't afford to provide for. The Wagner Act, which was passed in 1935, established the rights of labor to collective bargaining and organization. 
It established the National Labor Relations Board to settle disputes and to settle such matters as um, jurisdictions, even between unions. And the third and the probably the most important act of, of um, the second New Deal was, guess what? The Social Security Administration. The Social Security, I, I read an article a few years ago which, which um, um, demonstrated that FDR was not all that excited originally about the Social Security Administration. He was afraid it would be con simply considered a welfare program, and he wasn't in favor of it. But he was talked into it by Frances Perkins, his Secretary of Labor. And remember, she was the first woman ever to um, be a member of a, of a presidential candidate. In fact, she would stay the full 12 years in the cabinet. But she talked Roosevelt into signing the Social Security Act. The Social Security Act uh, created the the modern system of retirement income. Um, it financed assistance, assistance for the aged and the needy. It provided for disability insurance and survivor's benefits. The Second New Deal also brought about the Second Agricultural Adjustment Act. And what had happened was the First Agricultural Adjustment Act, as, as was the case with the National Industrial Recovery, or the National Recovery Administration was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So FDR went back at it again, and they established the Second Agricultural Adjustment Act, which um, provided granaries for farm surpluses. Farms Farmers would store their surpluses in these granaries, and they would be paid for storing their, their, um, their surpluses during high, hard times. And when times were good, those surpluses would be sold, and uh, the farmers, of course, would repay the loans and take the, take the profits from those loans. So again, as I say, the second New Deal was much more concerned with the people's welfare over the long run. And it's the second New Deal, the National Rela the Labor Relations Act, the Social Security Act, um, that um, are still much in operation today. Now, so that's the New Deal. That's what FDR was all about. And there are other events that I time won't even permit me to, to touch on tonight. But um, some of you may want to ask some of those questions about some of the, for example, the court packing plan, which occurred in 1937. Why did FDR pack the courts? Was that a good idea? Was that almost uh, an act of a lack of patriotism? Some believe it was. So those matters, if, if you want to raise those in the question and answer session, we can do that. Um, so now I want to talk for just a few more minutes about economic depression. Officially, as I said earlier, economic depression is a downturn in the economy lasting several years. It's originally a recession. Uh, gross, domestic uh, gross domestic problem growth rates invariably fall. 
Um, they fell in 1930. They were minus 8.7%. In 1931, they were minus 6.4%. Now, GDP is the value of everything that is created in the United States. And this is the, the yearly downturn of those things that have value. All of the products that are manufactured, all of the services that are paid for, um, all of the, the stocks that are purchased and, and securities that are purchased. Um, in 1932, the GDP dropped 13%. So by 1933, um, by 1933, the total output had gone from $103 billion to only $55 billion. The stock market, which had once been um, at over 300, dropped to 41. Okay, so the question is, what do we face today? Are we facing another depression? Or have we instituted enough safeguards? How does it differ? In some ways, it's very similar. Because what has happened in recent months is an overextension of credit. Back in 1999, the Sherman Leach Act in Congress uh, repealed the Glass-Steagall Act. Remember the Glass-Steagall Act was that piece of the New Deal that said that commercial banks couldn't become involved in speculation. They couldn't buy stocks. They couldn't sell risky securities. But in an effort to make money, the Graham-Leach Act was passed in 1999 and President Bill Clinton signed it into law. And so the banks have been able to participate, commercial banks have been able to participate more readily in, in um, selling securities, in speculation. Some say, and I don't know that this is the case, but some of my conservative friends, and conservatives always insist that the government is much, is, is much the scoundrel when it comes to <clears throat> a failing economy as it is a help, some say that the government has required banks to sell to people who are poor because they're minorities. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. So there is a similarity between 1929, the 1930s, and, of course, today. The dissimilarity in, in, uh, is the fact that in, in the 1930s, the 1920s and the 1930s, in the area of international relations, everybody owed us. We're very much in debt. We have a poor balance of payments, a, a poor trade deficit. We owe tens of billions of dollars overseas. We face an international energy crisis, and yet, and yet, we're a very resilient people. We're the biggest market in the world. It would pay other nations and all of our creditors to keep us afloat. We're too good a market. We're too vital a people. 
And so I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see a depression. But your estimate is as good as mine. Nobody can know. There are a lot of myths about our economy. There are a lot of myths about life in general. A few years ago, in fact, this happens to be my, and this is very short, but I think very poignant. A few years ago, President Kennedy, while speaking at Yale, addressed the problem of keeping our mind open to new questions. This is what he had to say about mythology. As every past generation has had to disenthrall itself from an inheritance of truisms and stereotypes, so in our time we must move on from the reassuring repetition of stale phrases to a new, difficult, but essential confrontation with reality. For the great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often we hold fast to the cliches of our forebears. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. Mythology distracts us everywhere, in government as in business, in politics as in economics, in foreign affairs as in domestic affairs. So the question is, will we become the prisoners of our own fears? Will we dare not to do? It's ultimately up to us. Thank you for your attention. Menu bar file to navigate red letter right arrow F. Menu file menu o open recording save text check microphone setting. And I want to thank you so I want to thank you so very much for your very uh, scholarly work. For your very scholarly work, it's you know very obvious to all of us how hard you prepared for this, and we thank you. Let's see if we have any questions from our audience. So please state your name and ask your question, please. Uh, hello, this is Gary Wood from uh, Lansing, Michigan. Uh, well, I think I think I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the the news media kind of scares us because of the fact that uh, uh, like when things are going good, and then I mean we do have bad times, but sometimes dwelling, uh, hearing what the news says and talking about coming bad times causes people not to buy or, or sell and things like that, and and uh, maybe that that hurts us too uh, with with regard to the economy and things of that nature. Well, that's a good point, Gary. Um, there are any number of things that can, can frighten us, and the news media is certainly one of them. But there's a wide enough range, I think, in the news media now. I think, um, um, you know, there are, you know, especially with a new administration com coming in, of course, we, the, the progressive press is catching up to the conservative press. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we live in pretty scary times. The news media can 
can do it. But remember, we fell into this depression way before the news media had any effect on us. Um, I'm Mickey from Columbus. Um, I'm wondering, I'm reading a book now on the brewing of beer, and they discussed Roosevelt. Uh, his um, One of his um, planks in the Democratic Party in 1932 being the uh, repeal of the Volstead Act, and they seem to feel that that had a great impact on the the mood of the people and in putting thousands and thousands of people back to work. What What's your feeling on that? I'm, I'm sorry, ma'am. What did you say your name was? Mickey. Thank you, Mickey. Uh, I like to remember people's names. Well, I, it probably can be overstated, but in fact, it, it was one of the things I looked at as I was doing research. And in fact, um, uh, that was proposed in March of 1933. In other words, he, he signed a bill which eventually um, became a constitutional amendment and, and over, overrode the Volstead Act. Sure, I mean, it, it, it certainly had, had to stimulate the, con the economy. It had to, uh, and of course, you could tax it, and so there was more revenue to the government. That it, you know, that it was a major factor was um, probably not. Um, it probably it probably wasn't a major factor. Uh, well, well, I have the microphone here. I, I meant to say something about the end of the depression, and it just I I think I became conscious and I began to rush late in my presentation. I did want to make make one point. Many people say that the depression uh, only ended because of the Second World War, and there and there's some truth to that. I mean, uh, there was a recession in 1937. Uh, we came out of the recession in 37. Uh, Roosevelt lost a lot of his political authority after his uh, uh, attempt to pack, to pack the court failed. He got into some political trouble in 1938 when he tried to when he when he tried to uh, purge the Democratic Party. Uh, or at least purge Southern conservatives from the Democratic Party. But even though the war may have been responsible, you've got to take into consideration this. The war did not create the conditions that traditionalists, traditionalist business types, uh, said had to be the case. In other words, balanced budgets, um, lack of government participation, because the government the War Industries Board, the Civilian Review Board, and, and all of the other boards that were put into place during World War II to get GM and Ford and, and, and um, American Motors to create tanks and ships and stuff like that instead of cars, that was still government spending and government creating jobs and government creating a strong economy. So. If Dr. New Deal, as FDR used to put it, became Dr. Win the War, then uh, it still was the New Deal, and it was the New Deal that won the war. This is Bonnie in Ohio, and in my part of the country, people are concerned about the auto industry. And I was thinking as you were talking so much about farming tonight, whether the parallel in our modern times would be that instead of farmers, maybe the auto industry uh, takes the place of farmers in a sense, not obviously in, of course, uh, providing food, but in the sense that um, you have so many workers in that field. Um, do you think that there is a parallel there and 
Uh, also, is it possible for an industry, because there are so many workers in it, and because there is such a ripple effect, for an industry to, in a sense, hold a country or a government hostage? Well, Bonnie, I, I don't think that the auto industry is deliberately holding the government hostage, if I'm understanding your correction. And by the way, thank you for coming. It's very sweet of you to have come. Um, that's, I guess it's sweet of everybody to come, but I know Bonnie, and I appreciate the fact that she's come. Um, I don't think the farmer, I don't think the, uh, yeah, I think there's a parallel. The ripple effect is, is the key point of your question. Because if the, if the auto companies fail, chemical companies fail, steel companies could fail, trucking companies can fail, um, car dealerships all over the country can, can fail. I think there will be a meeting of the minds. Uh, I know that there are some strong feelings to the opposite, but I think there will be a meeting of the minds, and I think you can draw a parallel here. Um, I don't know, I'm sure there are more people in industry than there are in farming these days. So, you know, and back then, you, you, your question also points, makes another point, and a, and a very good point. Um, it's hard for most of us to realize today how, you know, how, how, how many farmers there were at one time. The family farm has given away in large measure to corporate farms these days. But in the 1920s and the 1930s, there were still a lot of family farms. So, yeah, um, of course, the farmer was the victim. The situation in the auto industry has been caused, again, by over-speculation, by, by, by not reading the market very well or um, on, on the part of the auto executives. Um, the question is, of course, every, the, you know, the Republicans are, of course, going after the unions, but union costs only amount to about 10%, as I understand it, of the total costs that, that automakers face. So, um, but I think there will be a meeting of the minds. I think President Obama will bring it about. This is Pat Price, and Ed, would you care to comment about how you feel about the wealth being sent to other countries in that our uh, uh, products are coming from other countries. We're doing a lot of diversifying of taking away jobs from the Americans to give to the other countries, and especially Japan and China. And I wonder if you would care to comment how you feel what that effect will have or is having on our current recession or depression. Oh, Pat, I think it has, I think it has a lot to do with it. And uh, here's, in fact, I have, a, I have a very strong opinion about that. Here, I, I'll tell you what I don't understand. I don't understand, okay, I, I do understand why somebody who, who um, chooses not to say to serve in uniform during, during a time of war can, can get into trouble. I understand that perfectly well. I even endorse it. But I don't understand why it isn't considered just good patriotism on the part of industry and businessmen to create jobs at home. Of course, there are some legitimate reasons. I mean, I, I think the, the movement in the 1990s toward um, um, free trade and, and cutting back in tariffs was probably a step in the right direction. Uh, but on the other hand, 
it just seems to me that too many jobs are being shipped overseas, and it just seems to me to be a, a, a just good patriotism to create jobs here at home, and I'm hoping that there will be more of that. Well, I think so too, and, and it's, uh, let's see if, uh, Joy, if you see any text chat questions up here. Um, I didn't see any, but you have better eyes than I do. Let's see if we have any. No, there's no uh, text chat um, questions as of yet. This is Don Queen from the California. This was a real fine uh, talk. There was a lot of things, questions I, I would have liked to hear about, especially the, what the Knickerbocker Trust did in 07 and the very frightening end of uh, uh, Roosevelt's speech, inaugural address where he was going to talking about declaring war on it was war on poverty, but against that, if they, if Congress didn't come through, he was going to ask them for absolute power. This was at a time when democracy was on the retreat and in Europe with Mussolini and Hitler and the fascist movement in England, and uh, there there was some threats in the United States with Huey Long, and I think J.P. Morgan tried to start something with the generals at one time when he got rid of the reserve. So that was a very, very frightening time. Also, though, I think it was the war that got us out of the Depression, because at 37 and 40, there was still half the country was still at the what we considered the poverty level. The country was really, the average person was really in bad shape, and it wasn't until World War II that we spent enough money, and we didn't follow the conservative uh, uh, path, but we, we did get out of the Depression. Well, you're right, Mr. Queen. Dr. Dr. New Deal did become doctor win the war. And, you know, FDR, uh, you know, he, FDR you know, was, was, not, um, was not an ideologist. In other words, there were members of the New Deal who thought that he should have nationalized the banks um, or that he should have nationalized, taken over the railroads or done any number of things that he wouldn't do. Uh, in fact, part of his, his negative reaction to uh, things or, or, or toward, capital, be, be, toward capitalists was because he felt as though he had saved them. He used to tell the, the story, it's like the, it, it, it's like the gentleman who falls in the water and and he's rescued from the river, and he complains about his rescuer because he rescued him but didn't rescue his silk hat. Uh, sure, um, you know, FDR didn't, you know, he used to say, I don't expect to make a hit every time I come to bat. I mean, the thing that, that made Roosevelt different than anybody else is he was willing to try something. Because remember, up until 33, the government was not willing to try anything. Um, the idea was that, that successful people were self-made people, that they were people emotionally and um, socially a kind of a cut above everything else. Um, it, it was kind of an offspring of the old... Um, uh, Darwinian theory of the survival of the fittest and, and, and which was why business had such um, a dominant place up until FDR believed that government was a legitimate tool of the people and that, that um, in fact, Harry Truman used to say that, uh, um, you know, private industry can, can, can send lobbyists to Washington. He used to say there's nothing wrong with them. They're perfectly okay. 
but the only lobbyist that the people has in what that people have in Washington is the president of the United States. Well, that's not true. Everybody has a congressman too, and a congressman is supposed to be a lobbyist. But one person's, you know, congressman is another person's enemy because, again, we hear about earmarks and we hear about pork barrel legislation and all that good stuff. So, um, but back back to your point, and and you're you're right, Mr. Queen. That there, there was there was a lot of the Second World War did create the end of the Depression, but I don't think I don't think. Roosevelt would consider that in any way a minus. Ah, how are you? This is Gene here. Um, I've got a few comments, and not I, I don't know if they're questions exactly, but um, but they'll probably give you some uh, areas in which you might w want to address some points. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It seems to me. It seems to me that one major difference uh, between now and and the depression, and you know certainly. Uh, People have been doing a lot of comparisons, you know, for months uh, between this era and the Depression, comparing and contrasting them. It seems to me that that uh, <clears throat> I I don't have the impression from what I've read uh, that there was any um, any 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 anything at all at that time uh, similar to the massive amounts of uh, of, of really pretty much just uh, un uh, unsustainable debt. Uh, issued. I mean, sure, banks failed and so forth, but uh, as far as I can see, a, a lot of that is because people didn't have confidence in them and made runs. Now, now, uh, banks fail not uh, not because people are withdrawing their money. Uh, they 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 fail because they have so so much debt uh, that's uh, unrecoverable, and um, and and people, you know. Uh, People have been living far above their means. The majority of people in the country, uh, for like 20 years, or 10 or 20 years now, because of the maybe 10 years because of the housing bubble, and I, I can see maybe an underlying similarity in that the housing in, in that people one reason that people have been living above their means now is because income, uh, the maldistribution of wealth. Uh, it, it, it is, is as bad or, or worse now than it was during the depression. But but nowadays, we have all sorts of ways of extending credit uh, that didn't exist back then. So that the whole culture has changed uh, now uh, to a to a culture of debt. Any in any level of society. Um, my other comment. This is sort of a question, I suppose. And you said at the beginning that you're not an economist, but you may want to touch on this. I, I've seen uh, conflicting. Uh, comments about the cause of the depression, and um, one school of thought uh, maintains that largely the the depression was caused because um, because of the factors that you were mentioning the the uh, the overextension of I mean the uh, depressed farm incomes and the maldistribution of wealth and and that people had consumed you know people who could afford things had 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 pretty much bought the things that were uh, affordable and available to them, and that's one reason that demand went down. That, that's what I've read. I don't recall you mentioning that as, as a cause. Then there's another school of thought, um, which which Milton Friedman was li largely responsible for. That the that the, uh, the, the, the government made the depression far worse. Uh, that it turned a, a recession, a severe recession, into a depression. 
and unfortunately I I I don't remember what their what the argument is there, but um, but I, I guess that would be the monetarist school that they. It, it, uh, maybe I do more or less remember it. I I think that what they are argue what they argue was that the government con uh, somehow s severely contracted the money supply or made the contraction much worse. And you may want to comment on that, and you may want to explain what I don't recall of what I read. But at any rate, um, I think it's important to get some. Um, ideas about these contrasting uh, views of the depression and um, anyway I've, I've been going on and I'm sorry if things aren't as organized as well as they might be but I've had you know a number of ideas so I've just expressed them and I hope it's not too much for you to deal with at one at one time. Well, Gene I'm delighted with your question I guess I'll have you stay with me here for a second because uh, I may have a question or two for you I'm not sure that I got everything and I, uh, yes I, I know what it's like I I kind of rambled on during the presentation it's a little embarrassing but uh, so I, I know what it's like. I know how hard it is sometimes to get your thoughts in order. But um, the, the problem with the, with the Friedman argument, in the first place, there was a law back then that the Federal Reserve couldn't issue... Um, there was a ratio, according to the law, that the, that the, that the federal government... That could issue money. I think it had to issue um, $25 worth of gold on every $100. So there was a certain, there was only a certain amount of money that the government, that the, that the Federal Reserve, there was only a certain amount of money that the, that there was a, a ratio that the, the Federal, that the Federal Reserve Board was limited by. Now that's one of the answers that I've heard. But Mr. Friedman's argument doesn't take into account the ongoing problems faced by the farmer throughout the 20s. It doesn't take into account, you know, the, the problem with the surpluses, the fact that, that, that they, the McNary-Hoggins Act of 1926 uh, was vetoed by President Coolidge. It was vetoed two years later. Um, Mr. Friedman's argument doesn't cover such things as um, disparage the disparagement of, of income between the very wealthy. You see, the, you see, the, the thing of it is, we do better. At least now, this is again. I'm not, you're, you're right. I'm not an economist, but it seems to me that if you're going to create money, you need to have markets. People have to have markets in order to buy goods that are produced by manufacturers. And if people don't have a sufficient amount of money, then you're not you're not going to make a sufficient profit. Um, yeah, there's much, there's much more debt today than there was. But we're also a very, very vital market. Remember back in 19, or in 2000, I guess it was, the last year of the Clinton administration. Now, many people don't realize that there was a, there, that there was a recession toward the end of the Clinton administration. And this is the dot-com boom that that occurred in the late 90s, um, but but there was a, a, a we we balanced the budget, and the challenge that faced George W. Bush when he came into office in 2001 was he going was he going to take that surplus and apply it to the national debt, or was he going to give it to the producers, you know, the, 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 well, 
you know, people of high incomes so that they would supposedly reinvest it. Well, he chose to um, institute tax cuts. He chose to spend the surplus on the producers of society, and look what happened. There were no debts in the 1920s. In fact, that's, just, that's the point. Um, Herbert Hoover used to, used to kind of ruminate on, the, on the, the, the idea. He said, you know, in 1932, I was the fellow that had to suffer from the first unbalanced budget in many years. He said, our, our deficit was, was, a, was about a billion. And he said, in the midst of this grief, Mr. Roosevelt, in denouncing our deficit, as all deficits ought to be announced, denounced, made an uncomfortable remark that too often liberal governments have been wrecked on the rock of deficits. And then he paused and he says, however, he only made that remark once. In fact, that way, one of the aspects of FDR's um, uh, inaugural was he talked about income balancing outgo, and um, FDR didn't achieve that very much. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a story about that. When, when, when Roosevelt was running for re-election in 1936, um, uh, <clears throat> they were planning, a, he was going to speak in Pittsburgh, and he'd been in Pittsburgh four years before in 32, and he'd, he'd, he'd made a speech in Pittsburgh saying that, uh, you know, above everything else, there has to be a balanced budget. And they were trying to decide what they should say about that because the budget was clearly out of balance by 1936. And um, finally, Sam Rosenman, one of his advisors, uh, said uh, to him, he said, just deny you ever said it. That's all you can do. So, yeah, debt is, debt is always a problem, but there's always a market. And again, that's probably where I'm showing some of my ignorance from um, an economic standpoint. But... but um, I, I think the creation of markets are, are what solves most problems. Are what solves most problems. Okay, we're going <clears> to <throat> have time for a couple of more questions. So let's have someone who has not asked a question, please, take the first shot here. Lynn Evans on the ch text chat says, "In what way did the seven billion dollars help the economy today?" I don't have the answer to that question. Um, it depends on how it's spent. The $7 billion hasn't all been spent. I think they've only spent about $300 billion of it, $700 billion, not $7 billion. I, I think she, um, $700 billion. Um, these things sometimes take time to come around. Um, we don't know to what extent things are better because that came out. Again, if, if you say no, if you say if, if, if you absolutely refuse, there's going to be a result. Remember, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And uh, I, I confess that um, I happen to be one of those who, who believes, I, I think the, the great lesson of the 1930s tells us is that we can't afford to quit on ourselves. Um, sometimes punishing isn't enough. You know, sometimes there's something beyond punishing that matters. So only time will tell. And obviously, and, and, and the, oh, the thing about the auto thing, it's people talk about an auto bailout. These are loans. These loans have to be paid back. And uh, if they're not paid back, then there will be bankruptcies. But it just seems to me that we need to keep our heads and, uh, and um, try to make the most 
in the way of opportunities out of the money and the, and the trading and the daring that we still dare to do and uh, simply not quit on the situation. Okay, one, very good. Uh, one more question, please. Well, I think a very telling remark that Ed made is, you know, we have to wait. Some of these uh, will not be short-term solutions, and we have to watch. I know it was tempting for me with the bailouts, and no, you know, these executives are just ripping us off, and uh, certainly it's the fault of the government for not monitoring them better, but uh, we are certainly aware of it now, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Ed, you did a scholarly job here, and I know you worked very hard to prepare this lecture for us. On behalf of Accessible World, we want to thank you so very much for coming and presenting tonight. We want to thank everybody for being here. And I know that Pat wants to have the final word uh, thanking you here. She is our founder uh, of Accessible World. And uh, so, Pat, let me turn the microphone over to you. We do sincerely thank you very much, Ed, for the contribution you have made in helping us to launch uh, our new uh, way of doing things in our new outreach. All of our planned programs are not going to be uh, so scholarly. We plan to do entertaining things. We plan to do things to not only challenge but inform and all. So keep watching the uh, news wires as they go out because we do have some very interesting things coming up. And I'm sure that Ed is going to be back with us again because we haven't begun to scratch the surface uh, with some of the knowledge that he has to share. And thank you so much, Ed, for being the very first to kick off and launch our new initiatives. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Pat. Uh, this was a new experience for me. Uh, I wasn't as eloquent on, at all times as I would like to be, but uh, it was a first, and um, I'll gauge these things a little better, and perhaps I can come back and actually do a, do a program on which, because again, the economy is not my strong point, <laughs> but uh, it was fun. I'm really honored that you asked me. I mean, as I say, this was the first academic lecture that I've ever given, and I'm, I'm delighted that my best friend Ro was here, and my friend Jan, what a sweetheart she is, and Bonnie here, and, and I certainly appreciate everybody here, but of course, you know, when you, especially when you know people, you're, you're grateful. My friend uh, Muhammad and uh, it's it's great to have these people around me, and and I hope I didn't embarrass anybody. And and uh, but anyway, but I I certainly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Yes, I I did work hard. Uh, um, and, but the more experience that I have, I I think the better I can get at it. But thank you for the opportunity. And Lynn Evans on the text chat says, "Thank you. This was quite informative." Good for Lynn and good for Ed. And uh, again, um, if you want to read Ed's column, we have the uh, blog spot uh, item up there and his email. Uh, if you didn't get it or something, look in the release, hit F6, and the release will be there with the email with all Ed's contact information. Get his columns. They're really good. He did a beautiful one on Thanksgiving the other uh, week. It was just terrific. And Zachary Taylor and on and on. And this week, his own thoughts on things. So he works very hard, and we appreciate it.